This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the people that make the local stuff for our screens, big and small, gathered partly for their annual prize giving, but also to launch a campaign called Love Local, part of which is a big push for the powers that be to tax the likes of Netflix, Disney and Apple to fund the stuff that they make here. We look at that, the legacy of a much-admired editor from the old school, and... Get this, mass voting fraud did occur. Was it just a bit of fun that benefits birds or foreign media manipulation? Either way, the Bird of the Century competition did deliver a clear-cut result this week, as we still wait for a new government. The Electoral Commission is working to resolve data entry errors in the general election official results. It saw hundreds of votes wrongly assigned across three voting places. That was TVNZ's Matty McLean on The Breakfast Show after revelations of errors at some polling stations in last month's election, exposing the Electoral Commission's Chief Electoral Officer, Carl Lacane to awkward questions like this one. My gosh, how did this go so wrong? Look, we're, we're really disappointed. We missed these in our checks, and I want to apologise. A review eventually found that in the end, no electorate contests were materially affected by those errors. However, that could have been the case in some electorates where the results were decided by a handful of votes, and some could yet be decided in recounts that really do depend on the votes cast being counted properly. And just days later, Carla Kane was back on The Breakfast Show to face more awkward questions from TVNZ's Anna Burns-Francis. Another set of mistakes. Can you still be confident in our electoral vote counting and record process? Look, we're, I'm incredibly frustrated that our quality assurance checks didn't pick up these data entry errors. It was the New Zealand Herald which first revealed earlier this month those problems and sparked that independent review. And this week, one of the paper's columnists, former politician Richard Preble, said that a judicial review was in order now because he said there are reasons to doubt the result of the 2023 election. And it wasn't the vote counting that worried him so much as the possibility of fraudulent votes cast by people who registered on election day. While other political journalists pointed out that Richard Preble didn't really mention any evidence in the Herald of actual voting fraud. And as it was the same paper which revealed the actual vote counting irregularities because their reporters checked rigorously, publishing urgent claims of apparently imagined irregularities serious enough to undermine elections is even more incongruous. Now fast forward to Wednesday this week on TVNZ's Breakfast and Anna Burns-Francis was back talking about this. Mass voting fraud did occur. But this time she wasn't talking about the general election but the vote for Bird of the Century. And the fraud she was on about was instigated by the media overseas, and the organisers here actually conspired with foreign media outlets to game the system and fix the result that offshore media interests wanted, as we'll hear in a minute. Now, the annual Bird of the Year poll run by Forrest and Bird, of which Bird of the Century was an offshoot, is essentially a media stunt anyway, but TVNZ Breakfast was pretty amped to be able to announce it live just before the 8am news on Wednesday, like this. New Zealand's Bird of the Century is... The Boo-Tiki-Tiki! John Oliver will be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> John Oliver running interference. But at the same time on RNZ National, Morning Report didn't exactly pump up the volume quite so much with their live announcement. 
Hi there, Ellen. Welcome to the program. Should we get straight to us? Tell us which bird won. Kia ora, Ingrid. The winner is the putikitiki. <laughs> Am I supposed, I'm feigning surprise here. And the reason Ingrid Hipkiss was not in a state of suspense there was the much-hyped campaign for the Putekiteki, run by the US-based British comedian John Oliver. Now, he bought billboards urging people to vote for the Lord of the Wings, as he called the contest, in many countries around the world and even appeared on other talk shows in the US, dressed as the bird, to encourage offshore fans to vote. And on his own show, Last Week Tonight, he rebutted criticism of him aired in the media here for sticking his beak in. That campaigner for the Kiwi that you saw earlier, who told a news outlet, he doesn't even like New Zealand, to be honest. Any time we feature on his show, it's so he can laugh at us with the butt of his jokes and he's doing it again. And look, yeah, I am doing it again. Yeah, I am. But it is not because I don't like you. It's because I f***ing love you. But is that feeling mutual? Well, not for RNZ's Corindan, it seems, on Morning Report last Wednesday. Uh, it's hard not to like John Oliver and have a bit of a laugh, but, you know, to quote Wayne... <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Brown, it's bollocks, really, isn't it? There's <laughs> well, no it way the Pootiki Tiki is the bird of the century. When you think about no, all I... the effort that goes into this competition over the years and all the birds, this just, you know, just seems extraordinary. But anyway, but anyway, it was a good laugh. And some of Corandan's listeners didn't feel the same way, though on Morning Report, the Pootiki Tiki had the last call. I mean, I love John Oliver too. I just think, you know, it's just, uh, it just doesn't sit right with me. I have to be honest. And this person points out the co- that uh, the century is only 23 years old, so maybe a lot can happen over the next 77 years. Maybe another bird of the century competition. Here is the uh, bird of the century. The Australasian crested grebe. Pūtekiteki. So we're the Morning Report co-hosts there overthinking a bit of fun that might, in the end, benefit our birds? Or was this a case of the media being led by the nose and even manipulated by offshore media? Those are questions Hayden Donnell put last Wednesday to former RNZ stalwart Lynn Freeman, who's now Forest and Birds Communication Manager and who was heavily involved in how that Bird of the Century competition played out in the media here and overseas. I've been asked so many times today about political interference... Um, but people are forgetting that that he's very open about the reason he's doing yeah. this, you know. Like, our, our little um, contest is about advocacy and just getting people to take action and think about our birds, and even if all they do is vote, you know. It's doing something, it's learning, it's conversation. When he's commenting on the fact that America finds it very easy with its uh, wealth and influence to interfere in elections in other countries. He said it a few times. I think people don't quite understand that that really is at the heart of this. Um, he's, he's also helping us, and he's really in, in, been engaged with us, and we're terribly grateful. You know, it hasn't been... He hasn't imposed himself on it. He could have done this without our permission. It's all been um, really friendly and enjoyable to work with him. But he's making a point, yes. and we're making a point. Apart from, apart from calling us Australia at one point on the Jimmy Fallon show, I potato, suppose... Potato, potato, <laughs> Mark. Potato, potato. <laughs> well... You are deep in the pocket of Big John Oliver. No, here. no, I, I so was actually is, a bit offended. I wasn't myself offended okay. at that point, but he did correct himself pretty quickly. <laughs> so a bit of a dual mandate here. He's doing a satirical thing about US election interference, and you're raising awareness for our birds. But but for us, of course, we have this kind of attachment to 
this vote. It actually means quite a lot to us. Mm. And the Poo Tiki Tiki wouldn't have won without John Oliver's help here. So is it robbing us of a chance to really to, to, to crown our real bird of the century? I don't believe so. In fact, I have seen um, the Poo Tiki Tiki in Lake Wanaka. They're actually a really beautiful bird. Mm. And they're in real trouble. And this is this is, again, the point of bird of the century. Like, if you remember the rock wren last year, most people will never, ever see them. They're tiny, they're in impossible places. And suddenly, for a few days, we were able to talk about the rock wren, what a remarkable little bird it is, nuggety little bird, um, and the threats to its future. Because yeah, it's, it's, almost, so it's almost been like the Kiwi came second, but we already have lots of efforts underway to conserve the Kiwi. Lots of people know about those. We do, and we love them. And, I mean, I think any of the, what, 76 birds that we had this year, you know, they're, they're all winners. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I guess that's the message I'm trying to get across, you know. The, the campaign managers for the Kiwi, the campaign managers for the CARE, the, the second and third place getters, they just went hard. They got more than 13, 000, uh, more than 12,000 votes mm-hmm. each of them, only about 900 votes between them. They, you know, I just, I love the energy and we know that people care and we know that genuinely there are people who are upset. But it could have been, you know, if you didn't vote for the top bird, you were always going to be disappointed. And it's that passion. Are those campaign managers, are they they gutted that they put all this work in and then got absolutely steamrolled? I think there'll be just. Only 290,000 votes in it, mate. Yeah, it's close. Um, Good good effort. I think they've been, I mean, they've both actually, you know, had time on John Oliver's show, which is pretty good to talk about, you know, their their birds and have the profile. Something like 100, more than 190 countries. Even I didn't know that until we crunched the numbers. And we've had votes from. So the conversations are are happening in media and in countries and in households. I love the fact, actually, in a way that people feel so, so involved in this, that they're upset that their birds are not official bird of the century. But I think most of the birds in the top 10 actually are former birds of the year. So they've yep. also had their time in the sun. And so please, everybody, take take it in the spirit with which we meant it. Look, it, there's, there's no question that this, just as it's a record number of votes, it will be a record um, donations for us. They're still being toted up, to be honest, but kind of been really focused on getting yes. the votes right. Um, <laughs> and that's why we're, you know, a couple of days later than we meant to be. Can you give us a bit of a backstage kind of a back, behind-the-scenes view? What was it like dealing with John Oliver's team and his network? So, you know, I mean, you know, this has been an interesting... Um, secret to hold. It was all on. They approached us. We said, go for it. The writer's strike happened in Hollywood. So for a few months there, this was off the table. We didn't know until the writer's strike was resolved whether this would happen. So it was really touch and go. Uh, So that was tense. I don't think we had any idea how full on John Oliver and his team were going to go for for it. Um, You know, the costumes and the puppets and the billboards. But I think the spirit of it has has been good. And when he says he loves New Zealand, I believe him. And when he yeah. says he actually loves our birds, I believe him. And he's been very supportive of us. I'd love to say this was part of a plan that we had from the start of the year and every step has been um, planned out. Uh, that is not the case. This has been a roller coaster for us. I think we're surprised at where it's led us. And it has been overwhelming for a really tiny organisation. Mm. I think the weirdest question I was asked in many interviews today was, had we thought about manipulating the result? I wondered that. I Yeah, I <laughs> thought you might you'd disqualify some, some ballots or something, oh, but we, you we didn't. we disqualified um, several hundred thousand were disqualified for being fraudulent yes. or unvalidated. So when we say that there were 380,000, know, 350, 380,000 yeah. validated votes, almost as many again 
we had to get rid of. And that's why it takes time because, you know, one person, as you say, Hayden voted for 40,000, you know, 40,000 votes for the rockhopper. <laughs> Cute hipster penguin vote. But most of them were entered with open hearts and people really thought about the birds of the century, our New Zealanders. Record number of New Zealanders voted. And to be honest, if John Oliver came back and said, would like yeah. to support, you know, a different bird or the same bird for Bird of the Year... We wouldn't say no. Other US TV hosts, other famous people trying to get on the bandwagon as well? No, I don't, think, a... I don't think they will, although Jimmy Fallon was having a very yes. funny time, wasn't he? That was one of the funniest things yeah. I saw when he was interviewing John Oliver in the Puteketeke suit. Oh, my God, I love that um, sense of humour or budget to be part of this wild ride. But I suspect next year we're not going to be courting overseas. He came to us. Um, I, I'm very happy when it's grassroots yeah. and we simply have campaign managers all around the Motu uh, you know, going out there and doing their thing, whatever their budget, uh, and and um, just just their enthusiasm and love for the, the birds that they really care so deeply for. That's that's the that's the payoff for, for bird of the year, stroke bird of the century. Thanks, Lynn, mm-hmm. and also congratulations on running an election with a clear winner. <laughs> no <laughs> judicial review required. No, no, no negotiating with the Kia. Over bird we've, feed. We've got it. <laughs> and I, I look out for um, John Oliver's um, victory dance. I imagine he's collecting material as we. Speak. That was Lynn Freeman, communications manager at Forest and Bird, who was heavily involved in how that Bird of the Century competition played out in the media here and overseas. And there she was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell on Midweek Media Watch with Mark Leishman on nights last Wednesday here on RNZ National. This week, the people that make the local stuff for our screens, big and small, gathered for the annual conference of their umbrella group, Screen Producers NZ, still known better in the industry by the historic acronym SPADA. As usual, it kicked off with the memorial lecture, which honours the pioneering local movie maker John O'Shea, a champion of the local film industry for decades, starting in the days when film was the only screen industry here. Now this year, Sparta did something different with the lecture. TVNZ's John Campbell conducted a sit-down interview with James Cameron, the Hollywood titan who made Titanic, Terminator, Avatar, and who now works and lives here at least part of the time. On the stage in Wellington on Thursday, John Campbell put what he called the standard Kiwi cultural cringe question for famous foreigners to James Cameron. What do you make of the place? (laughs) No, I, I, I love being a Wellingtonian, and, and I love telling all my pals back in, in the States that it's the windiest city in the world. Really no shit, the windiest city in the world. They don't, they don't really believe it. And when he revealed at the event that he planned to become a New Zealand citizen next year, the news was rushed onto the New Zealand Herald website as urgent news, though the headline that quoted James Cameron as saying... I love being a Wellingtonian, might have miffed people across in Wairarapa, where Cameron has owned a lot of land and homes for some time now. James Cameron only had good things to say about filmmaking facilities and talent here in New Zealand, but he also warned it's not cheap to film here and we're in competition with countries like faraway Croatia. And that pointed to the key issue for the local screen producers this year, how to find the finances to make their content. James Cameron, whose first film was just 15 minutes long and funded by a local dentist, said that the screen production rebate that productions can claim here, including his own smash hit Avatar, was critical. Government believed at that time in the rebate program. The uplift was proposed, and so we were able to turn around to the studio, which was about to commit to 
very, very large funding stream over time and say, we, can, we think we can get the 25%. Now, this scheme means that international productions can get a fifth of their spending back and New Zealand-made films can get two-fifths. Other countries offer similar incentives too, but what often amounts to tax breaks for hugely profitable offshore movie studios have been controversial in the past here, not least when Amazon Prime got a $100 million boost to film the Lord of the Rings TV series here, even though that wasn't enough to stop it going offshore after just one series. Now, James Cameron was prepared for John Campbell raising that issue last Thursday. He had a long list of things that his productions had bought and paid for, including several hundred Air New Zealand flights. Now, New Zealand screen producers can also get money from the public purse in the form of money dispensed by funding agencies like the New Zealand Film Commission, NZ On Air and the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency, Tamangai Pāho. But at their annual do this week, the Screen Producers Guild, SPADA, launched a bold bid for a whole new source of revenue. As part of a campaign it called Love Local, SPADA has urged the government to levy the New Zealand income of international streaming platforms like Netflix, Disney, Amazon and Apple and funnel that into those public funding agencies. So at the SPADA conference this week, I asked the President Irene Gardner if she really thought the incoming government was likely to tax the titans of tech on their behalf to create yet another source of finance for them. Internationally, some territories are going for quotas, some are going for levies, some are going for a mixture of both. This is a global thing. Everyone is looking at this issue at the moment. And so, yeah, as we get a new government coming in, it would be great if we could really take a serious look at how best to do this for New Zealand. And would you be doing this if the likes of Disney Plus or Netflix, Amazon Prime, actually had more New Zealand content, either you know they bought it to put on the platform or they were actually making original productions as Netflix does in other comparable countries. If they were doing that, would you not be asking for this? That's a really good question. Netflix, Disney, Amazon, Apple, that's the big ones, have been pretty slow off the mark in terms of New Zealand commissions. There have been a couple, but it's been really small. Uh, and they have, they've also bought some shows, but it, it's been a really slow start. If that were to change and they were to come to us and say, hey, actually, rather than this levy situation, how about we just say that every year we will commission three or four significant New Zealand productions, that could change things. And see, that would be, in effect, I guess, a voluntary quota which would get around the thing of that we can't uh, legislate with a quota. Yeah, I, I think that possibly could change the complexion of it. Well, in the absence of that, you want the new government to, at the very least, think about this, so you've put the idea on the table. But in the past, national governments haven't really wanted to get involved too much in, in broadcasting. They're happy for commercial broadcasters like Sky, for example, to take risks and build up their market. They haven't wanted to penalise them for that or, or tax them in any way. In a separate area with journalism, the outgoing government had a bill to effectively force the likes of Google and Meta to pay for journalism. In principle, this new government said, no, we don't want to tax these companies. It's the, the words the broadcasting media spokesperson used. So do you think a national-led government is really going to be sympathetic to what you're suggesting? I'm actually quite hopeful that they will be, because this is a business initiative. You know, we're not asking the government for money. We're asking the government to do some work which would result in some new money coming into the industry. And, you know, you can talk about things about, well, you know, it's a free market and protectionism. But 
it hasn't really been a fair playing field because the international stream is working in the New Zealand screen industry, taking you know viewership in the New Zealand screen industry, making money. They're not really contributing anything. They're not regulated in any way. They're not paying tax. And they actually use New Zealand broadband infrastructure, which was, you know, funded by partially by taxpayers. By yeah, it was, a, it was a national infrastructure rollout, like just like the launch of, say, digital television, for example. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I do feel quite hopeful with the new government. New Zealand First have something about the streamers and their policy. Uh, I think they've left it a little open in terms of whether it would be a quota or whether it would be a levy. And so, you know, they're going to be in there. We shall see. One thing that didn't happen with the previous government was they had plans for a public media organisation. That would have involved a complete rejig of New Zealand on air's budget. So some of the money for, say, television production specifically would go to the new organisation that Television New Zealand would have been subsumed into. Then that's not happening, so they had to flip the New Zealand on air budget back. So I guess they're working through a new strategy here. We'll hear about it at this um, event. Um, Are you concerned that for local producers, they can't really know what to expect or how much there'll be in the contestable pot that'll go to the kind of productions they make? One of the sad things, I think, about when the ANZPM initiative ended up not happening was that there had been money earmarked, but there was a kind of a greater tranche of money that sort of seemed to just go back into the general take. And, of course, the economy's tightened up quite a bit since then. And so, as a Producers Guild, we would always be lobbying for strong funding for our three main funding agencies, the Film Commission, NZ On Air and Tamangai Pao. But we also have to be realistic, you know, in terms of the economic climate. I would hope that perhaps that $10 million that came into NZ On Air at the fallout of ANZPM as a one-off, that that could become a regular baseline for, from now on. So, yeah, we will be talking a little bit in that area as well just to see if if there's anything that can be done. You know, we appreciate it's tough times. And if you got, say, this extra revenue stream that you hope for from the streaming platforms, the likes of Netflix, Apple, etc., the idea would be that that would go to the existing funding agencies, for example, New Zealand Film Commission uh, for movie movie and film projects, New Zealand On Air for broadcast and um, online initiatives, and Tamangai Pāho for uh, Māori-specific content. That's what we're putting forward as Sparta. We're putting forward that uh, the percentage levy on the big streamers, that money is then channeled back into local production via our three main funding agencies, because that would seem the simplest way to do it. If at the end of all of that, if we can't get government to even try, and I think that's unlikely, you know, I I would actually try to go directly to the streamers and say, hey, you're actually a part of this this industry, whether you think you are or not, you're a part of this ecosystem and you need to play, play fair, so why don't you commission X number of New Zealand shows each year? You know, so I'd approach it a slightly different way if we had to do it ourselves. Well, they, they must have been asked that question already, right? I mean, well, there's asking and there's asking. I don't think they've ever been asked it in a really targeted, formal way. I think that's kind of at heart. That's the point. But wouldn't they just say, sorry to be awkward, but wouldn't they just say, look, our algorithms, you know, you watch this, you will enjoy this. If they don't do that and turn up, oh, yeah, we want to see New Zealand or local productions in that market, if they're not showing that, then they've got no incentive to do that. And they say, well, nice idea, but, yeah, make me. They they wouldn't want to do it. But I don't think that would be a very fair argument because you can't argue that something's not coming up in an algorithm if it's not there. 
and so they need to try a few. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think I think I could argue those things and would be prepared to try. But the first step is definitely government and regulation of some sort. I mean, this is happening all around the world, and we're a little bit slow off the mark. So I think we just need to really get that grunty piece of work done in terms of well, how could we tackle this? Um, there's another source of funding which was mentioned at the event, which was the rebate. Even had James Cameron talk about production. Yes. So this is bigger film and television productions. Yes. Some of the spending can be effectively it's like a tax break or whatever. You get, you get your money back uh, for money you spend. Um, yeah, James Cameron had a long list of <laughs> spending on various projects to show that this was money that wouldn't be spent here, investment that wouldn't be made. That screen rebate fund, it has been extended over the years to become more available, hasn't it, for uh, bigger production? We've had the screen production rebate for nearly 10 years now, and yeah, our percentage for international is they is 20% back and for domestic is 40 and as James Cameron was saying you can sometimes get 25% as an international if you meet certain criteria. We are in about the mid-range in terms of our international competitiveness on um, the international side of things. You mean the percentage that you get back? Yeah. Yeah. The screen production rebate is incredibly important to the screen industry. It's it's basically been what's changed everything over the last few years and made us a much more grown-up industry, you know, doing shows for the world, doing co-pros, selling. It, it, it's really put that lifeblood in. It's also made us a popular destination for international productions working here. But I guess the thing that we try to balance um, at Sparta is... You've got to have a strong domestic industry to keep feeding the international industry and vice versa. They sort of need and feed each other. And so if you can get domestic a little bit stronger, it kind of tides us along when we have rough patches like the Hollywood strikes or whatever that take out international for a while. But, but all, it's also kind of politically tricky, isn't it? Because you've got... It's a rebate, let's call it a kind of tax break. Then there's public funding for Film Commission, New Zealand, on air, Tamangai Paho as well. And you want to add to that with the Love Local campaign, this element of taxing the stream, a third, another element of tax. I mean, not many industries get to have three streams of funding, yeah. whether they're domestic or I, you know, I exporting. I see those as well. as quite separate things because the money that's coming through from the Film Commission, um, Tamangai Pao and NZ on air, that's actually for public media content. You know, that isn't for commercial content. So that's the public media, public good part of our industry, uh, which is the same as, you know, the work that Fakata Māori or RNZ does in New Zealand. And actually, if you add up all of New Zealand's public media spend and the way we do it, it's really low compared to most ca- countries who ha- you know, often have a full public media, TV channel, etc., etc. I sort of see that as a different thing. That's a public good thing. And also, of course, all those shows are getting made for people in New Zealand to watch them. They're getting those shows for free. Well, they're not. They're getting them for paying their tax, and they're for all kinds of, um, you know, niche audiences and all of that. So I kind of see that as a separate thing. The rebate is much more of a business incentive, and yes, occasionally people do look at only the line where the money goes out, and they kind of go, "Oh, why is the screen industry getting that money?" But it really is a, you know, you spend this enormous amount of money, and in return you get given back this very small amount of money. So for the New Zealand economy, it absolutely is a winner. You know, like, it's, it's millions of dollars. So you say other industries couldn't really offer that? 
Um, on a project. No, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, gaming are about to. Gaming, gaming have just got the rebate, and they'll do really well, I think. As New Zealand gaming um, companies are doing really well internationally, and I think we'll continue to do so, and I think the rebate will be a big help. So, yeah, I mean, there are different things like that with different industries. I think ours adds up financially. That was Irene Gardner, the president of the Screen Producers Guild, also known as SPARTA, talking to me at its annual conference in Wellington earlier this week about its bid to persuade the incoming government to sting the global streaming platforms to fund local screen productions. On Wednesday last week, the Southland Times filled its front page with news about one of its own, Fred Tullett, who's died aged 77, and who also has a repertoire of stories people won't forget. Fred had edited the paper for 15 years, following stints at Wellington's Dominion, the now-notorious tabloid Truth, and several papers in the UK. News of Fred's death also spilled over onto page two of the Southland Times that day, and in a separate obituary in Stuff's papers last weekend, his colleague Michael Fellow noted this. News of Fred Tullett's death relegated a strong story about the financial struggles of medical trainee interns to page three. He would have gone crook about that. At his funeral in Alexandra last week, Stuff's chief publishing officer, Joe Norris, recalled Fred Tullett's remarkable scoop about suspected Israeli agents being spirited out of the country after the Christchurch quake in 2011. But the story of Fred's that most people can't forget, if they've got long memories, was one that came completely out of the blue back in 1984, when he picked up a ringing phone at the Dominion Sunday Times, and it was Naomi Longy, the wife of the then-PM David Longy, on the line. Now, this was at a time when their marriage was on the rocks. Now, she spilled the beans to Fred Tullett about David Longy's adultery, and then Fred Tullett put it in the paper. Almost 20 years later, when Fred was at the Southland Times, the story of an affair involving Auckland Mayor Len Brown also made nationwide headlines, but this time... The story was being peddled by political opponents of Led Brown, who was facing re-election. And at that time, Fred Tullett spoke to Media Watch about whether the public interest would really be served by this private situation being revealed in these circumstances or not. Before I uh, became editor of the Southern Times, I was chief reporter at the Dom and was aware of affairs that were going on at Parliament. But you have to find a relevance to make it newsworthy. This latest thing with Len Brown is really interesting because of the um, stories that are now being carried in the Herald relating to pressure being put on this woman by Brown's political opponents. This is actually developing into a really important story. What makes it important to you, Fred? It would appear that for some weeks before uh, this was made public and for some weeks before the election, pressure was being brought to bear on this woman, or at least she says to make this public before the election, essentially to try and ruin Brown's election campaign. Well, that's becoming the story, and a much more interesting story. We live in a fascinating world now because of all the social media. It's really helpful for journalists working closely with Twitter and Facebook. We're getting information all the time from the public, and it's great. But we have to be careful that we're checking everything. It's accurate, and if it is, we've got a story. That was Fred Tullett, who died last week, aged 77, talking there to Media Watch back in 2013 about the fine line between private lives and the public interest in politics. 
Well, that was the year that Fred retired from journalism, but at the Southland Times, he also spearheaded several campaigns at the paper on local issues. And one in that year, 2013, was about water quality, and it prompted Federated Farmers' local president to complain that they're giving us a caning. And he said the editor has cooked his goose with rural people because they're not going to buy the paper. The hand that feeds us gets smacked all the time. The Federated Farmers National President at the time, Don Nicholson, also complained. But that's an important part of journalism's job description and the sort of thing Fred Tullett would happily put on his front page rather than an account of his own career. A link to Michael Fellow's full account of his colleague Fred Tullett's life and times in journalism that was published in the Stuff Papers last weekend can be found in the online version of this story on the RNZ website or the MediaWatch section of the RNZ app. Well, for now, that's all for Media Watch for this week, but we'll be back with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch after the news at 10pm next Wednesday on Nights with Mark Leishman. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.